I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you either were cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold refined to buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, You may be seated, and before I jump into that text, let's, let's pray. Father, we open your word each week because we believe that you speak to us through the scriptures, that the person of Jesus is present here by his spirit to, to open our, our hearts, minds, and eyes to, the, to your truth. And so God, we, want to be, we just want to be a church responsive to who Jesus is, and just help us be that. I, I pray too, God, as we, as we think about moving into a long-term home, God, there's, there's a financial reality in front of us, but also there's a missional reality in front of us where... God, we're, we're moving to that place because we want to have a home to welcome people in to the way of, of Jesus. And so to do that, our hearts first have to be open to the way of Jesus. We have to be centered and focused and following him in all things in our lives. And so that's why we open your word. Uh, and, and God, would you lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, in 2008, the, the Indianapolis Colts were opening their brand new stadium, Lucas Oil, they had just won the Super Bowl about uh, a year before, and so the whole city was, was like really excited. New stadium, former Super Bowl champs, and, and we, were get to, we got to open uh, the NFL season on a Sunday night uh, in national TV, this new stadium, and got to play the Bears, the team the Colts beat in the Super Bowl the, the year before. So all of Indianapolis was super excited. I had a bunch of people in my church over uh, to watch the, the game, uh, but the game itself was, it was kind of a disaster. Peyton Manning was actually hurt, but the Colts hadn't really told anybody that, so the offense looked terrible. And the Bears just dominated the whole game and and won 29-13. to But that's not what's relevant. What's relevant for you is that there was one kid who came over to watch the game that night who decided he was going to be like the contrarian and be the one Bears fan in a room full of Colts fans. But not just root for the Bears, like root for in such an obnoxious way. And so as the game just deteriorated and went worse and worse, he just got more and more obnoxious to the point where I was like, listen, man, if you don't stop... We had a big picture window. I'm going to put a chair out there. You're going to watch the game from my front yard through the window. Because we had this, you could watch TV through our window. um, So much so that our neighbor's kids actually would often do that. If our curtains were open, they would watch what we were watching through our window, which was kind of weird and creepy. Um, But so we could do that. So he just, he kept it up. So finally, a couple of us, older, wiser, more mature Christians, we, uh, we got... We got a chair, we put it in the front yard, we picked him up and we put him in the chair in the front yard, opened the windows, and we let him watch the game for a few minutes. We let him back in, it was a joke to be clear, it wasn't, it wasn't for real. But the reason I think about that story, that moment, like this, that kid watching, the, watching that game through the window outside, we kicked him out of my house, 
is because that is what this church has done to Jesus. Jesus in like in Laodicea, he's like, hey, uh, hey, I'm like I'm outside. Can I come back in to your church? Which you like that is like what happened? So where like this church actually kicked Jesus out, and he's like, hey, if you got, if I can come back in, I, I'd like to. Can I come back into my my church? And so I want to I want to think about that this morning. It's basically a two-point sermon. Uh, point one, and I'm not going to put this on the slide because this feels very sacrilegious, and I'm just I'm being very cautious here. But point one is how to kick Jesus out of our church. Because that's what they, they've kicked him out. And he's on the outside looking in. And that's where I want to start our meditation this morning. What kind of church does that? And that's what Laodicea has, has done. So this morning we're, we're at the last the last of our, our Revelation sermons, next week we're going we're gonna to have kind of a, a family conversation around Christ's community, our DNA, who we are, and what, what, everything we've talked about in the last few weeks, what it means for us moving forward in light of this series. But, but this morning we end our time actually in Revelation, where we, we've taken the last several weeks to look at uh, Revelation 1 through 3, the seven letters, as well as this revelation of Jesus you get in Revelation 1, just to, to ask the question, what kind of church are we supposed to be in this cultural Moment that the book of Revelation itself was written to explain to Christians how to live between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And we live in that moment now. And so how do we live in this moment faithfully as the church of Jesus? And so this morning we come to the last letter, the final letter of the seven. And it's, it's to a place, to a city called Laodicea. And this church apparently had figured out church so well. They were so great at doing church. They actually didn't need Jesus. This is a really terrifying thought. And there's one phrase that I think, I think captures this well. The first thing that Jesus says about this church, uh, which is verse 17, Jesus says to them, for you say, right, so they're, they're the ones who are saying this, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. The church that says, I need nothing, is the church that's kicked Jesus out. Right, like we're Jesus, we're good. We got this. We have it figured out. And you see this work out itself out in three ways in this this church. And the first being that their material wealth made them irrationally confident. That Laodicea itself, the city, had a, a thriving economy. And in about AD sixty, so probably about thirty years before this was written. Uh, there was an earthquake in Laodicea, um, and, and, and yet the city itself refused any outside help from Rome, the rest of the empire, because they could pay for it themselves. And so it was, it was like an act of pride on their part, is we don't need your relief money because we're rich. Watch us rebuild without any help. And so there was this moment of, of pride. And, and I think about that, right, we're rich, we don't need anything. I think about that moment, I think about that moment in light of, or that, that saying in light of the American church and Christ community in particular, right? Like I feel the dissonance. I just gave you an update about we just paid off seven million debt. Now we have seven, probably over seven million more projects we're, we're looking at. Um, and I just wonder how much of our own spirit is, you know, it's, we got money. We're good. We'll, we'll pay that off. And I have to, like even, like as your pastor, our material wealth as a church has lessened my dependence on Jesus. And I think at times even taken my eyes off of what matters and what doesn't 
Because we're good. The bills are paid. And don't hear that as a stop giving, right? Don't hear that, right? Because generosity to faithfulness, like don't, don't hear stop giving to the church because that, that's not what the answer is. The answer is, is dependence on Jesus, both in our own individual finances as we give generously to other things and we don't live in wealth and don't live in, in self-security but live generously. But as a church, it means we, like, we have to think about some. I'm thinking about some of those things. And I'll talk more about them later, but, but material wealth leads to I don't need God. And the Bible says that in so many different ways. And, and you and I, in every way we can, because of the culture in which we live, that has to be on our guard continuously. The thing that is probably most likely to take any one of us in this room away from the way of Jesus is probably money and greed. Because it's so available to us. And this church has said, you know, like, Jesus, we're rich. We go somewhere else. We, we got this. And I would just ask, has your material wealth made, made you irrationally confident? Has that, that led you to silence and to sequester and to shove Jesus off to the side because you, you don't need him? You have everything you need. That's first. So material wealth made them irrationally confident. It's like that. Okay, a gut punch one. Uh, and then it gets worse. But secondly, their, their self-reliance made them blind to their own sinfulness. And I want to be clear, like self-reliance is a good thing. It's a, it's an, it's a virtue, in, both in the Bible and just practically, right? To not be dependent on other people in terms of, of needs. Or, like, that's a good thing. We should all aspire to self-reliance. But the problem is, the more you're able to rely on yourself, the more you accomplish, the more you become impressed with yourself. And you forget that at the end of the day, we are all nothing more than sinners deeply in the need of the grace of God continuously. And the more you provide for yourself, the more it's easy to think, you know, I did it. Why can't other people do it? I figured this out. I've, prov- I've, prov- I've done it, right? Like, I've accomplished. Why can't everyone else should accomplish? Like, and, and, and then a pride, which is anti-gospel, enters in. And so you see Jesus sort of lay them out here a little bit. It says, you say I'm rich, I'm prospered, I need nothing. But what you've forgotten is that actually you're wretched. You're pitiable, you're poor, blind, and naked. And they've been blinded to their, their true condition. Which as, as people in the way of Jesus, we should never lose sight that the way into the kingdom of God is not self-reliance. It's not effort, it's not work, it's not accomplishment. The way into the kingdom of God is that, is that you got away with something. I got away with something. And that Jesus' death on the cross forgives our sin. And we get a kingdom and a savior and a reality that we could never own. We could never earn. We could never deserve. And so, so Christians going around saying, you know, I don't really need anything. I got this, I've got money and I've, got, I've done it. I've accomplished. To, to be in that spirit is is not just sinful, it's actually you've forgotten the first step into the kingdom of God, which is, I was a wretched, poor, pitiable sinner whom Jesus saved. That Christians should be the most humble people on the planet, in touch with our own brokenness and our own sin and our immense need before Jesus. And I think if you were to ask our broader culture, are Christians humble? I think we know the answer. 
The Christians are often the people in, in places of judgment looking down on others instead of the place of humility looking up, saying, come join us down here, <laughs> right? And I got, a, I got a glimpse of that this week. Uh, I was able to, I was traveled to, to Memphis um, this week with Ben Holland, who serves on our outreach team. And we attended uh, our primary global, uh, global partners, the China Partnership. And so we, we spent a, a couple days with the China Partnership um, at their, their council meeting. And the, the primary mission of the China Partnership is to, to plant churches, to train church leaders, and to, um, to seek renewal in the church of, of China. And it's an amazing group of, of people. And so we were able to hear sort of on-the-ground reports from what's going on there. And in particular, what's happening, um, as we've communicated throughout this series um, in China, is that uh, President Xi is, is in increasing control and consolidation of power over um, the, the Chinese people. And that's meant a particular religious persecution, not just for Christians, for all religious people. And so uh, one of the primary leaders of the China Partnership in China, a pastor, has been in prison now for almost a year. Um, most of the churches have faced some sort of harassment or persecution at this point. And it, it was interesting listening to what's their response. And I'll tell you that first, there was not a single pastor or request for the persecution or harassment to stop. That was not the primary prayer request of the pastors in China. <clears throat> One of their primary response, the, the first couple of items on the list that came from uh, pastors in China serving was that first, that their persecution, the, the harassment they're, they're receiving, revealed their love for the world and their desire to be in control. And that now in the persecution, they're seeing that, that God is removing that love of the world and desire to be in control. Because when you're being harassed and you can't even, potentially can't even meet in the building you once met in, like you don't have a control anymore, right? It's like you're not, you can't run the show when the government's in, in, injecting themselves in. And so what they, they communicated to us in the, the West is they see this persecution as an opportunity to repent of sin, to grow and to change and to be more dependent on the gospel and the power of Jesus, not their own capacities. That the persecution ultimately has exposed their self-reliance and they are praising God for it. I want to be clear, that's, that's them. Like, there's a level of spiritual maturity that's like, I don't even feel like I should be in the room for when I hear those things. I just... That's not me saying that, you know, to them. Like, that's their report from, from China. And ultimately, right, we can either go around life listening or not listening to anybody, completely confident that we have the world figured out, or you reject self-reliance to live in the abundant grace of Jesus, wanting to him to refine away all that's broken in us so that we're over time more and more and more like him. And that response from those church leaders, to me at least, shows like that sort of reliance on the way of Jesus, such that they don't, they don't see this moment as a moment to try to get back control, but they're like, let us, let, let's, we're going to let go. We can't do this. We're broken. And here's where we want, we want to, to change. And, and, and what's amazing is, is, you know, Jesus says some hard things to this church, right? Like, you, you're telling me you don't need me. And so you'd expect, like, Jesus is going to go postal, but he doesn't. Listen to Jesus' tenderness towards this church, right? He's just said, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, blind, and naked, right? That's not great. But listen to this. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
right? Jesus, he calls them uh, wretched and pitiable and poor, and he says, but I have gold. It's refined by fire. Do you, do you want that? He says that they are, they are naked, and he says, uh, I've, got, I've got clothing for you that will cover your shame. It's white, pure white garments. And you're blind. Oh, it's okay. I have salve to anoint your eyes to heal you. It's like they're poor and, 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 and wretched and pitiable. And Jesus says, I have clothing. I have healing. I have salvation. Come to me instead. And that's, that's a beautiful, amazing invitation. That's ultimately what the gospel is, right? It's, it's even in our moments of brokenness and sinfulness. And we've, we have messed up. Jesus is not there as a judge See, you know, speaking, con- they kicked him out of the church. And yet he's like, hey, I've got, I still have clothing for you. I still have healing for you. I still have, I have re- true riches for you. Like, just, can I just come back in? The commentators notice like the, the severity of the condition of Laodicea and how, like, how bad they are is not matched by like this Jesus tenderness of grace that he offers them. So I'd ask, are you approaching Jesus for, for his grace? rejected self-reliance, in total need of him, instead of coming to Jesus and saying, I need nothing, are you coming to, I have nothing, and you have everything I need. Please, please give. So this church, their material wealth drove them away from Jesus. Their self-confidence, or self-reliance drove them away from Jesus. And then thirdly and finally, their self-confidence made them, made them missionally worthless. And so Jesus says to this church in verse 15, like, I know your works, they're neither hot nor cold. And, and this is a reference to the, the Laodicean uh, water supply. Um, the Laodicea had like notoriously terrible water. And, and, and this was especially insulting to the city because they lived right in between two cities that like had the best water supplies you could, you could, um, you could have, right between the city Colossae and, and Heropolis. And so Colossae, it was known for its pure cold waters. I used to think hot day, a cold glass of water, nothing better than that. And Heropolis was known for its, its hot healing springs, right? So it was a spa, right? So you had the cold water, uh, you know, and then you had, uh, you had a spa, right? Those were the two, and uh, Laodicea was right in between those two. But Laodicea did not have good water, so they had to construct an aqueduct, aqueduct that would, would bring in water from five miles away, and it would bring in water from hot springs. But the problem was once it got to, to Laodicea, it was lukewarm, it was tepid, it was not good, which is why Jesus says, like, the water that you offer me, that I drink from your, your life, <laughs> the water that you offer, it makes me want to throw up. And so just like, uh, just like coffee is good hot, right? We've got some out there. It's good hot. It's good cold, cold brew, right? Good, both good. Uh, lukewarm, tepid water, not good, Right, that's why I always get myself a cup of coffee uh, before first service. I drink a little bit. Now, by now, it's tepid. It's lukewarm. So I'm going to go out and get myself a little more coffee. It's hot. It's like good. Hot is good. Cold is good. Lukewarm, not good. And Jesus is saying, your water is lukewarm. And, and so what people wrestle, what does that mean? And, and uh, a number of commentators say, well, that's, that's in reference to their mission to the city. Their posture towards the city, their appearance towards the city is that rather than people coming to them and finding this church a drink of cold water, um, on a hot day, or a hot spring, a, a healing bath. Rather than the church being a posture of healing or grace or goodness to the city, they're not worth anything. Their evangelistic spirit is gone. No one goes to this church and thinks, I want to go back. And of course, this cuts against what, what, what the Bible says should be true of our lives as Christians as we live out. And so in, in 1 Peter 3.15, one of my favorite verses, 
Peter says to the church, uh, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense, and this is the key part, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That Peter expects that when others look on the lives of Christians, they will be provoked to ask questions. And the question will be, why do you have hope? To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Our lives should be lived in such a way that it provokes questions of hope. Right? It should, we should be like, you have, you have a cold glass of cool water. How, what is that? Right? Or this, your life is a hot spring. Why why is that? And, and to be clear, it's not because Christians are morally superior. We live morally upright and upstanding lives that are so much better than everybody else. We look down on other people and they're like, how do you, how do you get up there? Like that's not, I think, what the Bible is, is getting at. Instead, the, the, the church is such a place of scandalous and irrational grace that people are, we live with such hopefulness, right? Because there's nothing to be taken from, the, from us in that respect. That we live lives of such hopefulness, the, the rest of the world says, I want that. And Laodicea does not have this. Their water is tepid. It's, it makes Jesus want to throw up. And so here's, a, okay, if we want to kick Jesus out, here's how we do it. Lots of money. Lots of self-confidence. Lots of blindfulness to our own sin. Lots of ignoring our city and the opportunities to share the name of Jesus with our city in other words, the, the way to ruin a church, to kick Jesus out, is lots of me, lots of you, lots of us, and, and no Jesus. So we began uh, the series with, uh, with this chart, with a, a chart that, that we'll throw on in the screen that just shows the enormous decline in American Christianity. And I've been wrestling with the question, why? Why is that? And this week, I got to have a dinner with one of my former, uh, with a former boss of mine when I was in campus ministry at Indiana University. And we had a great time catching up together. But there was like a, a period of like the inter, like there was an intermission part of the conversation. It was like 20 minutes. It was just like really depressing. Where we just went through all the pastors we know who have, have fallen, all the churches we've seen uh, disgraced over the last um, few, few years. The church in the American moment, in this American moment, I think is in a really not a great place both through our own personal sin, through our, our compromise theologically in a, in a number of different ways. We've talked about that throughout the week, um, the weeks in our, our series. Um, and, I, and I wonder, and this is just, this is Tim opinion, not biblical. Um, I just wonder if, if like the Chinese church is being purified through, through persecution itself, I just wonder if the American church similarly is going through a purification process of, we've just done it on our own so long. Right? Like, we figured out how to do church without, without the gospel, without grace, without Jesus at the center. We've created these really attractive environments that, that we have super large churches all over the place. And, and it looks on the surface like we figured it out. And then you enter in and, and we've, lost, like we've lost Jesus. And this dependence on, on him such that, uh, that we've become lukewarm to the rest of our culture. And people have have seen what, the water we offer and, and are not interested because it's not the gospel. It's not the grace, the scandalous grace of Jesus. And this spirit that we have, we have it figured out, we need nothing, is alive and well in American Christianity. Because I, I get all the emails from the, the latest pastor who's figured out, if you just do these things, which are almost never like prayer and repentance and preaching the gospel, it's almost always, if you just, we figured out how to do church to get a bunch of people in your doors. If you do it like we did it, 
Um, we'll grow. You'll grow so, so fast. I, that, I get so many of those emails that we, like, we, we don't need anything because we figured it out. And meanwhile, Jesus is like, hey, like, can I come back in? <laughs> am, I, am I allowed back into my, my church? So let's open the door to him. And I want to, talk, I want to close with three practices that I think a church that, that welcomes the full presence of Jesus is true of. Three practices. The first is, is we seek his presence in prayer. That again, despite this church's position toward Jesus, which is like, we don't need you. I mean, that's essentially their, their mission statement is like, we need nothing. Um, not even Jesus, which is not a great mission statement. But Jesus' posture back to them is, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice, anyone hears my voice, anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them. And they with me. But Jesus is offering us his, his presence. And if I was to like make a scale where on, on one end is, is I need nothing, right, Laodicea. And on the other end is G, like communing with Jesus, eating together with him in communion. The greatest way to determine what end of that scale you are on is your, is your prayer life. And I want to be clear, it's not, it's not, it's not quantity of prayer. Right, so the, you know, I feel like if pastors ever want to make people feel guilty, it's like, how much are you praying? Right, that's the because no matter how much you answer, it's like I could pray more. Guess I'm not praying. Enough. It's like, and I don't care about quantity. I mean, I do care about quantity of prayer, but that's not the point. And, and to prove this, uh, one of my you know reading mentors, Eugene Peterson, who clearly had a really powerful prayer life. I remember listening to him in a lecture one time. He was talking about Martin Luther, who would pray for hours before he even got up. So Martin Luther would get up like at 4 a.m. He'd pray for two hours before his day even started. Probably more than that. And Eugene Peterson, I just remember him. Basically, like, saying, like, that's dumb. He's like, that's what, you don't need to pray that much. Like, quantity is, like, what matters more is, is and this is a cheesy saying, but, but quality, which is how do you approach Jesus in prayer? And, and here Jesus uses this metaphor, like, let me come in and eat with you. And I think oftentimes in my own prayer life, I approach him more as my waiter, right, which is, I, I need a refill, uh, refill. Please, you know, I asked for this rare, some medium rare. Um, actually, just go get me some In-N-Out burger in, you know, in hindsight. Right? So we, we, we tell him what to do. We direct Jesus in our lives instead of, in prayer, him being our companion. The one who first comes and offers us gold and clothing, refined, you know, white garments, gold refined in fire, healing. You, know, you, you can't see, let me heal your... Instead of first coming to him as our state for healing and his grace and his kindness, and then just to sit with him in his presence in communion... So what I'm not saying is pray more, right? It's no, no, no. What I'm saying is he's not your waiter. He wants to eat with you. Let him eat with you. Receive his grace. Dwell in his presence. Even if it's just quiet, if you got nothing to say, just go. Jesus, I'm going to sit here. You said you wanted to eat with me. I'm opening the door. I'm just going to sit here. That, that's okay. It's posture more so than, than time. And I want to be a church of, of prayer. And, and, and I hope, I hope you want, you'll help me build that. And I, I don't know what that looks like. I know what the first step is, um, is we're going to have a, a prayer night on December 9th. Um, that's the, the one-year anniversary of one of the pastors in China Partnership being arrested. So, so we're going to pray for the Chinese uh, church persecuted, as well as, as we're going to pray just our own church. We're, we're moving into a building um, sometime in the next few, few months. But I, I feel the spirit of moment of God wanting to renew his church in, in America. I just, want to pray. I just want to start with his presence and seek him. 
Because we need everything. We have nothing. And he has everything and more than what we need. And anything we try to bring to the equation to make, make church better for him, it's, it's always bad. It always draws our eyes away from the way of Jesus and towards ourselves and self-confidence, reliance, material wealth, all of those, those things. So first, we want to seek his presence in prayer. And ultimately, what prayer is, is I can't do this, right? Like, that's the, it's a posture prayer. Jesus, come in. I need to eat with you. That needs to be my life. So first, seek his presence in prayer. And then secondly, uh, seek his presence in, in hospitality. That those who have, who have eaten with Jesus, who have experienced his hospitality, are going to become people of hospitality to the world. And I just want to illustrate this, this really shortly. Which I'm, what I'm not saying is we're better than everybody else. We're morally superior to everybody else. And therefore, they want to be like us. That's not the way the Bible presents it. It's provocative hope. And one of the best ways that this has been illustrated for me is, is, is some of you probably or many of you know uh, the story of Rosaria Butterfield, who was, um, you know, was a feminist, very hostile to the way of Christianity. She's, uh, she's written a couple of books, but the gospel comes with a house key. I, re- I recommend that to you. Um, and in that, that book, she tells the story of how she wrote this, this, this uh, uh, op-ed at some point in the Syracuse newspaper that was just totally anti-Christian, and, and a Christian pastor wrote a letter to the editor response, and and she found it like, she said it was one of the kindest pieces of hate mail she'd ever read. And it intrigued her, and she started this relationship with this pastor who eventually invited this person, this, this woman who's very hostile to the way of Christianity, into their, their house to eat with them. And over time, that led to her conversion. And, and listen, it's a long, compelling story, but I want to summarize it with this. She was converted through a letter to the editor. Like, we should be so weird that even the way we write, like, we write a letter to the editor, and someone's like, I think Jesus is interesting. And you can't, you can't force that. You can't fake that. That only comes through a person, through a life that is so dependent on the radical grace of Jesus that it just oozes out hope and expectancy and, and kindness and grace towards others. That's what hospitality ultimately is, is grace and kindness. You, you take a, a, a home, a place, and someone who comes in an, an enemy becomes a friend. That's what Jesus does to us first through the gospel. And, it, and if, as the more we commune with him, the more we become those people. So we want to seek his presence through hospitality, through prayer, and then finally and thirdly, through, through expecting God. Jesus' last line in this letter, it's something else. I mean, you should have, like, this should have scandalized you to some extent, right? The one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus, like, Jesus says, if you, if you commune with me, you will sit on my throne. That's a stunning statement. The, for, for the longest time, like, I sort of understood Christianity to be like, Jesus, he died on the cross, he was buried, he rose from the dead, and then he disappeared. And we, we're not sure where he is now. He's coming back, but he went somewhere. We're looking for him. We'll find him. Don't freak out. Like, but that, actually, the gospel, and the gospel gets cut off at the resurrection. That's not how the New Testament Christians told the gospel, though. They always told God, they included his ascension to the right hand of God. So Peter, the first sermon in Acts 2, doesn't stop with, and Jesus rose from the dead and he disappeared. No, he rose from the dead. This Jesus, this is Acts 2, verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We saw it. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, what he says is that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. He rose from the dead, we saw that, and then he was exalted to the right hand of God, which means Jesus now, and this is throughout the New Testament, he is on a throne ruling history. That's where he is, right? He didn't disappear. He is ruling history 
from a throne. Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God. And so Jesus right now is on a throne in a position of authority and power. And think about this. What Jesus then says to Christians in Laodicea, to us today, whether we're in China or U.S., Jesus is exalted, and, those, and though we may be in a place with no cultural power, no cultural influence, a persecuted minority, this church was the same deal, and they went around saying, actually, we're not. Jesus runs human history from the right hand of God. And so they were the most hopeful, expectant people. They expected God to be at work all around them because they knew where Jesus was. Church, we should be the same. There is nothing God cannot do. And even when terrible things happen, Jesus from his throne is reigning and ruling. He's not caught off guard. He doesn't promise any of us an easy road. But he does, say, he does say, stay with me and you will sit on the throne with me. Listen, the only throne I have ever sat on someone with is at a mall Santa throne. And Jesus says, throne of history, you will sit with me on it. So think about this with me for a second. Laodicea is so confident in themselves, they kick Jesus out of their church. And I think all of those goods are at play for us today in our own American culture. And I hope instead we, get, we hear Jesus saying to us, you are actually poor, but I have gold for you. You are actually deeply sinful, but I have a white garment for you. You're actually, you're blind, but I can heal your blindness. I want to come in and eat with you. Will you let me? This series has been an honest look about where we are as a church in this cultural moment, but I hope it's, it's filled, you, filled you with hope. Though we Christians, we, we can do weird things. We lose sight of what matters. We get enamored with the things of this world, whether it's material wealth, our self-confidence. So we stop asking for help. We become hypocrites, and we fail to see our deep sinfulness in the incredible antidote of the gospel to us. And yet despite all of that, the center of our faith, Jesus, the Son of God, reigns from a throne, and he wants to eat with us. He wants to change the lives of our neighbors, our friends, so that they can know Jesus and share a table with him. Jesus wants to share a table with you, to heal you, to serve you, to love you, to know you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into them and eat with them and they with me. Let's open the door. Let's pray. Jesus, we approach you as people who have nothing and need everything. And we are grateful that when we come to that place, we do not meet a God who is there holding all of, our, all of our stupidity against us and instead offers us unimaginable wealth, incredible hope, unending grace and kindness. So God, we just want to sit in that for the rest of this morning as we sing, as we take communion, as we, as we prepare to leave this place. Sit us in your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.